Take your Bible and find Psalm 42, verse 1. Psalm 42. We're in the series entitled, Caring for Your Soul. We've looked at the origin of the soul out of Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis. We've looked at the value of your soul. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Last week, Nathan preached about the battle for the soul. Today, I want to talk to you about what's been called the dark night of the soul. What do you do when God seems to have disappeared? How do you respond when you seem to have lost your connection to Jesus? I'm not speaking about a time of the spiritual blahs. I'm referring to those times when the spiritual lights go out, when you're in a spiritual ditch, when you can't seem to connect with the Lord in any way, and the good news of the gospel instead becomes the disparity gospel. Now, the late Chuck Colson will always be one of my spiritual heroes. Even though my conversion was just a 180, I didn't know how to apply my faith to everyday life. So I was given his book, Born Again, one year after I was saved. It changed everything for me. It taught me the importance of a Christian worldview. It demonstrates how Jesus affects every aspect of life. It made a tremendous difference in my life. I recently ran across a blog piece he wrote before his death. He recounted his salvation for many years earlier, and like any new believer, he poured himself into his word, into God's word, his church, and prayer. And if you know the story, if you know anything about him, he went to prison a short time later, having pled guilty to a Watergate-related crime before his conversion. And when he was released, he started a thriving ministry that exists today called Prison Fellowship. He became very influential in the Christian world, was a sought-after speaker. God's blessing was upon him. Then, in rapid-fire fashion, he learned that his son had bone cancer, which required a 10-hour surgery plus chemotherapy. His daughter was diagnosed with melanoma, which is a serious skin cancer. There was an ongoing ugly dispute with a disgruntled former employee, and his wife needed major knee surgery. All this happened right after... He finished a book he had been writing for two years. The title of the book, The Good Life. He wrote, alone, shaken, and fearful, I long for the closeness with God I had experienced even in the darkest days of prison. There are times when our soul is empty. Now here are a few of the symptoms. You look at your problems, you look at your life, you look at the Bible, and you wonder if God is really good. You become tentative about your faith, and many little doubts that you used to have in the past suddenly come rising to the surface. More specifically, you pray, and you feel like you're talking to yourself. You try to read the Bible, and it looks like a slab of granite. You get absolutely nothing out of any kind of a sermon, a study, or a class, and you can't seem to connect with God no matter what. The late Keith Green wrote lyrics about this very malady. He said, my eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. That's exactly what the psalmist is describing in this verse we're about to read. We read it during our uh, musical worship. Let's read just verse 1 today. We're going to get into the whole psalm next week. This is, th today's just a long introduction to next week. 
But let's read verse 1 again. The Bible says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. So my soul pants for you. Several weeks ago, I skimmed a blog post, but I noticed the author just used the little term disparity gospel. And I thought, that's perfect. That's where I got the title. It's an accurate description of this verse. The psalmist is in despair because he's spiritually thirsty, but God seems to have vanished. So when we fall into the disparity gospel, how do we get out of it? That's what we'll look at today and next week. So when we experience this disparity gospel, first, make sure that we have rejected all forms of the prosperity gospel. When our soul is on empty and God seems absent, it's bad enough, but here's what makes it worse. Deep down inside, I think many of us tend to believe in a form of the prosperity gospel. Now, you may be new to the faith and not sure what the prosperity gospel means. It teaches that God wants all believers to be wealthy and healthy. If you're not wealthy and healthy, it's a sign of God's disfavor because of sin in your life and or your lack of faith. If you are wealthy and healthy, God's smile is upon you because of your great faith and your holy life. And there are verses that are grossly taken out of context to support this false teaching, such as, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, I can go out on any kind of a business venture, and if I set my mind to it, and I believe that God's behind it, then I'm going to prosper. That is so far out of context, it's almost hard to describe. Another verse is this, great wealth is found in the house of the righteous. There are millions of faithful Christ followers in this world who live in poverty. If a man thinks that if he follows Jesus, he'll follow him because Jesus will give him a better marriage, a healthy body, and a divine boost to achieve his goals, he's not seeking Jesus, he's seeking what he can give him, and that is idolatry. If we ingest a subtle or a watered-down form of this, which does exist and persist, if this worms this way into our thinking, when trouble comes and you can't change it, you can become very disillusioned with Jesus and perhaps even walk away from the faith. It's a genuinely evil teaching. Now, in this church... I would suspect that the vast majority of you reject the prosperity gospel. You know it when you hear it. You completely reject it. You're saying to yourself, why is he even bringing this up? Because it affects us more than we might realize. We tend to believe in what I call the latent prosperity gospel. It's a watered-down form of it, and it lays dormant until circumstances arise for it to come to the surface. Let me give you a cultural illustration. Do you remember when the Twin Towers went down? How many people in this world said, where was God? God was the same place he always was, on his throne in heaven. Americans were so presumptive, we were so presumptive, so presumptive of God that we couldn't believe that tragedy could strike on our own soil. Now, what does it look like for us? It kind of goes like this. Deep down inside, I believe that if I'm faithful, God will eventually reward me in some tangible way. 
I mean, I can have a health scare in this life, but he'll eventually fix it and I'll have a long and healthy life. If I'm faithful, I can be bruised and beaten in life, but I'll never have a major tragedy. And when I do have setbacks, he'll eventually pull me out of them because with Jesus, it's always onward and upward, bigger and better. But the latent prosperity gospel has no category for a God who might leave you in a financial bind, even one not of your own doing. It becomes grieved at a God who healed lepers in the Bible, but he won't heal you. It's a belief system that can't fathom that God might take something from me, but not add something to me. It's a belief system, let's just get very hard here, it's a belief system that has absolutely no category, no possibility that a family member, a friend, or a colleague would die and go to hell. And if this latent prosperity gospel exists in our soul, when something terrible comes into our life, and no matter what we do, we cannot change it, we will enter this dark tunnel of the disparity gospel. Our soul will shut down because we don't have a biblical view of God, we have a cultural view of God. Now that's the hard part. If the disparity gospel has set in, ask yourself this, number one, do I reject all forms of the prosperity gospel? Number two, understand this is a major highway. When it happens, we tend to think we're the only one in this dark night of the soul, but there are examples all over the Bible. For example, God called Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. So he spends 40 years preparing, and then he spends 40 more years in the backside of the desert tending sheep. What did he think during that time? It surely had to seem like him that God called him to something that was never going to happen. Elijah runs from Jezebel, sits in a desolate cave, and thinks he's the only believer left. Job lost his family, friends, business, and health in one fell swoop. He was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. If the prosperity gospel was true, he would have taken Solomon's place, and Solomon would have taken his place, yet Satan was allowed to wipe him out. Let's be more specific. Habakkuk was frustrated with God, and he said, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And I think of Mary who watched her son at Golgotha in agony on a cross, helpless to stop the greatest injustice in human history. And in these verses, the psalmist is in essence saying, where are you, God? I'm thirsty for you, but you don't respond to me. Don't be surprised when you run into this experience. It is a major highway. Centuries ago, a Catholic mystic coined that term, dark night of the soul, and it's stuck for years. A Quaker named George Fox says, when it was day, I wish for night, and when it was night, I wish for day. Charles Spurgeon suffered bouts of depression. He said sometimes when he preached, he felt like a waiter at a gospel feast. So understand this disparity gospel is going to come at some time in some form in your life. And you're not alone. This is a major highway. So number three, recognize what God is doing during this time. Even though God seems silent, he is working in your life. What, 
he does in your life will be different in my life, but we, I think we can discern at least five commonalities that we all experience, and here's the first one. During these dark nights of the soul, when God seems silent, he is focusing our attention on him. He's focusing our attention on him. This is so counterintuitive we miss it. By his seeming absence, God is capturing all of our attention and putting it on him. Look again at verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. His soul is spiritually parched, and he's looking for God. But what's he doing? He's praying. So there are times we pray, and we pray in despair. We cry out to God just to feel something. I mean, we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. But the Christian life does involve feelings. We're people with emotions. There, there should be times when those emotions are engaged and we're just suddenly spiritually dead, emotionless. And we say, God, what is my problem? We skim through the Bible looking for something to stimulate us spiritually, anything, and we can't find anything. And what's happening is, that God is intensely focusing our attention on him without realizing it. When the psalmist says, my soul pants for you, O God, he's not saying, I don't care. I'm not interested in pursuing you. Instead, he's hyper-focused on God. And when you see this, you'll notice that the psalms are just shot through with the exact same thing. Psalm 109.1, O God of my praise, do not be silent. What's he doing? God seems silent, so he's praying. He's seeking God. Psalm 83, 1, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. Psalm 28, 1, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. Psalm 39, 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you. Psalm 42, 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And Psalm 88, 14, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? In every instance, God's seeming absence or silence causes the psalmist to focus more on God. If you are in this dark night of the soul, if you're feeling this disparity gospel today, you keep seeking God, you keep praying, and the day will come when the clouds will lift and you will break through in a new and wonderful walk with him. So he's focusing your attention on God. Number two, he's attacking our pride. Now, here's where the flesh is so deceitful. We tend to think that humility is a state of mind. In other words, if I feel humble and I think humble thoughts and I feel sorry for people in bad situations, then I guess I'm humble. I mean, I know if I say I'm humble, I'm not. You know, it's like the old joke, they gave someone a badge for being the most humble person in the church and then they had to take it away from him the next week because he wore it. <laughs> but if in my thought life, in my prayer life, I tend to think that humility is just this state of mind. But if humility doesn't come out in service, if it doesn't come out in actions, words, or deeds, it's not humility. Because we can think that peak walking with God is me and God in my Bible every morning, which, by the way, is a great practice that I heartily endorse. But here's what happens. 
Suddenly it's me and God and my Bible and the disparity gospel sets in. And I can't connect with God in any way. But the one thing that does happen is God begins to draw my attention. I'm speaking from personal experience here. God begins to draw my attention not to verses that give me comfort or verses that make me feel comfortable. He suddenly focuses my attention on verses that used to just roll off my back. They suddenly leap off the page and make me very uncomfortable because they require humility to obey, not just in the mind, but in our actions. Let me give you an example. Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. We can be so quick to think negatively of another church member or be easily offended by something someone said. But God wants us to gather on Sunday seeking how to show honor to each other and be the best one in the church at it, and that's humility. So if you want to get out of the disparity gospel, one of the things to do would be to speak words of blessing to other people. Another example, be devoted to one another in showing love. That requires words or deeds or actions, not just warm thoughts. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That requires words or deeds or actions. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. That requires words or deeds or actions. Humility starts in the mind, but true humility comes out in words and deeds and actions. Now let me give you another example. We do our best to minister to children in large part because people become Christians as a child. So children's ministry is crucial to evangelism, let alone discipleship. That means we need a lot of people to serve in Awana, nursery, children's Sunday school, and so on. And you might think that the next thing I'm going to say is, Man, those kids need you, but they don't. But you might need them. Serving children requires humility. Now the disparity gospel, handled properly, has some spiritual benefits. And one of them is this. It will lead to an honest confession of our spiritual state. In fact, let me back up. It will lead to an honest evaluation and then confession of our spiritual state. Because in the silence, and again, I'm speaking from personal experience but also things I've heard from many people and things that I've read. In the silence, God strips from us a self-assured, theologically smug, spiritually presumptive, devotionally complacent life. And we suddenly starkly look in the mirror and we realize we are never in a position to tell the world, look at us and we'll tell you how to live. We recognize that Christians have problems with difficult marriages and divorce, problems with anger and adultery, judgmentalism and cowardice. We have problems with fear and worry, which, by the way, are sins. Our kids go astray. Our hearts go cold. So in the silence, we recognize, as one writer put it, we're prone to wander, slow to learn, fast to sin, and we have not arrived. And when we get to that point, that causes us to grow in gratitude for God's great mercy and grace upon our soul. And then we really believe and recognize that the church is not just a, an, 
it's not just a hospital for sinners, it's an emergency room and a surgical center for sinners. And it's not a place where everyone says and does perfect things. And the end result is that we pant for God with a broken and contrite heart. And no matter how silent God may seem, he will not reject anyone who comes to him in that state. So in the silence, he focuses our attention on him. He attacks our pride. Number three, he corrects our view of himself. The latent prosperity gospel views God as sentimental and predictable. We can get in such a rut. We can think we can know exactly what God is thinking and exactly what he'll do. I mean, I know if I do A, he will do B. And a man named Richard Foster wrote a fascinating little piece on this. He said that during his dark night of the soul, and I'm quoting, the greatest value of my situation was gaining the ultimate awareness that I could not manage God. God refused to jump when I said jump. Neither by theological acumen nor technique could I conquer God. And in one of the best lines I have read in a long time, he said, theological niceties were of little use to me when I entered the Sahara of the heart. The Sahara of the heart. Our relationship with God begins in what he called mutual freedom. In other words, we have a free will because love can't exist without free will. That's philosophy 101. And there are torturous theological arguments that try to put this fence around man's will in light of God's sovereignty. But John Stott threaded the needle perfectly on this. He said, according to the first two chapters of Genesis, God created mankind to be both morally responsible and yet free, that is, invited but not coerced into obedience. But then he goes on to say there's still a fence around free will in light of God's sovereignty. So God has given us a free will. Otherwise, love isn't love. Love has to be voluntary. That makes sense. But that's not just human-to-human -human love. And it's not just human-to-God love. That's God's love directed toward humans. We think we have a free will. What about God? Psalm 115.3 says God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And this silence begins to change our presumptive view of him. Because at first we're shocked that God seems to have disappeared. He isn't responding the way we think he would or should. And understand this. I want to I be clear on this. God has greatly revealed himself to us through his word. And he cannot lie. So this revelation is 100% accurate, and he does not change. But what about what he hasn't revealed about himself? Do we know as much about God as we think we do? Now let me reiterate. He has revealed much to us. That revelation is accurate, so we don't imagine that God will act or be contrary to what he's already revealed about himself but we never get so close to God that we think we know his next move or we think we know all there is to know about him. He is God and we are not. And in the silence, that causes us to bow before him and recognize he will speak when he is ready. So what should we do in this silence and the suffering of our soul? And here's an answer. Continue to do in this darkness of God's seeming absence what you did when you felt it what you did in his presence. Keep asking, even though there's no answer. 
Keep seeking, even though you aren't finding. Keep knocking, even even though the door is shut. Because when Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, it requires persistence. And through this, we learn to love God, not the gifts that he gives us. We learn to love God, not the blessings that he provides. And we become like Mary in what I think is one of the most amazing passages in all the Bible. Mary was a very young virgin, visited by an angel. She was told that she would become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, give birth to the Son of the Most High, and that he would reign over the house of David forever. I mean, imagine being her. She You, you talking to me? I'm going to be invisibly impregnated, and, and this baby's going to be the son of God? I mean, Lord, I, you know, I was just minding my own business here. I, I, you sure you're talking to me? This doesn't fit in my theological basket, and I have a lot of questions. That's not what she did. Mary simply said, I love this verse, Luke 138. She said, I am the Lord's slave, May it be done to me according to your word. And God may be bringing you into a similar kind of obedience this morning. Now here's the fourth thing. He's teaching us about his comfort. Without suffering, you would not know anything about the character and nature of a God who is a God of all comfort. In 2 Corinthians 1, that's what Paul called him, the God of all comfort. That's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. That word comfort means encouragement for the purpose of strengthening and establishing in the faith. So for example, we're blessed when we mourn over sin. You can't be comforted over sin until you mourn over your sin. And when we mourn over our sin, how does God comfort us? He reminds us that our sins are forgiven, that they're as far from us as the east is from the west. So we have to know hurt and heartache to know the God of all comfort. I don't think it's really possible to be really close with God until you've been severely wounded in life because that wound removes all self-sufficiency And it causes us to draw closer to him in humility, and it leads to new heights in walking with him. Now lastly, when we go through the disparity gospel, God is pointing us to Jesus. Look again at verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you. He feels as if God has disappeared. This morning, if you're in the disparity gospel or any form of it, let it point you to the real gospel. The psalmist said that he was thirsty. Think of the one who on the cross said, I am thirsty. Our soul longs for God and we can't seem to find him. There was one on the cross whose soul longed for God in a way we can't understand. We feel as if God is absent sometimes in our life. Think of Jesus on the cross when he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? If you think God has abandoned you, if you think he's punishing you for your sins, by the way, he punished Jesus for your sins, not you. If you think he's turned his back on you, realize that God gave Jesus what he did not deserve, his wrath, 
So he can give you and I what we do not deserve, his grace and forgiveness and a new life through Jesus who was raised from the dead. And it could be this morning that you've never laid down your pride and your opposition toward him and his teaching, and you've never come to him in faith. When you know that you're a sinner, when you're ready, when God has brought you to the point where you're ready to give up the life you have for the life he has for you, that's when you're ready to be saved. Now, how can a person be saved? You say, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm, I mean, I remember my, I've, I've recounted my salvation to someone Friday night. I remember so distinctly. There was no doubt in my mind I was going to go to hell if I died. So if you're at that point, how are you saved? Well, listen, just ask him to save you. Not a prayer you repeat after someone, but just a genuine prayer that says, Lord, I, I deserve your wrath. I know I do. I know if I die without you, I'll go to hell. But I also know that you forgive and save sinners. I don't really understand it all, but I'm a sinner and I want you. So I surrender my life to you. I believe in you. I believe you were raised from the dead. So please save me now. It's not complicated, folks. You put your faith and trust in Jesus to be saved, not anything you can do. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer? Father, thank you that you do bring us through that dark night of the soul. Thank you that you give us so many examples in your word of people who have been thirsty for you and they can't find you. Thank you that you understand us when we go through these situations. I pray today that you would bring many people into your flock. I pray you would save many. And I pray for those who are in the disparity gospel, that they would recognize these truths, apply them to their life, and that you would give them the courage and the persistence to keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. And we know that the day will come when you will break through, in your wise timing, you will break through. And that person who is suffering that right now will experience a glorious new walk with you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear people here before us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand with us?